always going to be interruptions from somewhere, isn't it? Even if we sit and think about other things, look, there's so many things up here, like the smoke on the candles. You know, those can be distracting as well. But now we focus on God's word. Fishing. Bob loves fishing. Frank loves fishing. Who else loves fishing? Oh, we've got lots of people who love fishing. And you know when we want to fish and we go out in the boat or from the shore or over a bridge, we usually select the perfect bait or lure that we're going to use. I never ocean fished, but did a lot of lake fishing. And my uncle, my uncles, from, uncles are from southwest Kansas. We used to go and fish and Weekends, they would go out there all week when the harvest was in. Catfish, channel cat, that was it. Stinky bait, they used liver, they used corn, and just as stinky as you can make it. And he'd pull in the channel cat. Gotta have the right bait. It's ingenious when we, in our society, in the Western world, we go fishing, we let the bait and we let the lure do the work for us. And we sit back and have a beer. And we talk. Don't even notice the bobbers going under the water. And soon, oh, got to change the bait. Bait saves time. Something that's important in Western culture. And we can relax while doing it. Saving time and relaxing. Our gospel message in Luke uses the image of fishing. And in those days, fish hooks were not used. They used nets. Fishermen fished at night because in the daylight, the fish could see the netting through the water reflections of the sun. So at night, they hoped for a greater catch. So when Luke tells the story, bait and time were irrelevant to what the story is about. What is relevant for us to know, however, and what is kind of within the story of how fishermen fished, was that they used circular nets, they had weights on them, and it was labor intensive. Fishermen would fish at night, they would throw their nets out with weights on them, let them sink in the water, pull them up, throw them out again, weights in the water, pull them up all night long by chance to see if a school of fish was passing by. And just like here, they knew spots where they'd probably be. We used to fish by old dead logs, supposedly catfish that are under lily pads in shady areas. They had their favorite places, and they'd go out into the ocean or the Sea of Galilee and go fishing. But they were doing, all they were doing was casting and pulling in, casting and pulling in. If they didn't get a catch before dawn, all was lost. They didn't have anything to sell in the marketplace. Possibly nothing to eat. If they didn't catch anything, they labored in vain. No success. So on this occasion, tired and worn, worn out from all the fishing the night before, Jesus asks Peter to use the boat. Pushing off a ways from shore, he could see everybody on the shore who had gathered by that time of day, and he starts preaching. It was after he taught the crowds that Jesus tells Peter, let's go a little further out and let down the nets. And the miracle happens. Peter and the disciples pull in boatloads of fish, 
The nets break, they call their partners, other boats are there, the boats start to sinking. This is wonderful. It's happening in the daylight and not at night to boot. They were getting worn out and tired, but now it was worth it. The fact that they listened to Jesus, were obedient to him, followed his orders, and got fish as a result was beyond incredible for Peter. This is sort of the highlight of the story. <clears throat> as we saw in previous lessons during this epiphany season, it was with power and authority that Jesus drove out the demons. It was with power and authority that Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And it's with power and authority that he commands fish into the nets. Or at least the result of what they were fishing for. They listened to his word and they went out. I would imagine that it crossed the mind of the disciples and knowing Peter from other parts of Scripture probably entered his mind to take Jesus fishing with them all the time. They could have a monopoly in the marketplace. Why not? This is a pretty good deal. If he can do this, we might not even need nets. They'd probably just jump into the boat. They could be rich with Jesus at the helm, but suddenly our text says, Peter was captured by fear, astonishment. It literally says, astonishment surrounded him. It took him captive. And he falls face down at Jesus' feet. It's not anything that he did wrong. It's no particular sin that would cause him to fall before our Lord's feet. The disciples, no doubt, had heard about Jesus as he was going from village to village. No doubt stories circulated, and if they were there while Jesus was preaching, they heard his message as well, that the kingdom of God is now here and among you. And they knew when they encountered Jesus that what they heard was true. And they knew that they were in the presence of something greater, something far beyond human. This was possibly, probably the Messiah. And so they fell down. They knew instantly. Just like the shepherds who were told to go to baby Jesus, even before they got there, they knew. The wise men traveling, they knew. Without even having seen the baby. When Peter and the disciples encounter Jesus, they know that they are not worthy of His holiness. They know that they are unclean. They know that they are not worthy of his mercy or his love. And like the demons who cried out just Sundays ago, what do you have to do with us, son of God? So Peter's flesh and blood and mortality catch up with him in the presence of God's son. Go away from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not worthy of being in your presence. You're wasting your time here. Go away. Worthy. You know, not worthy. Sort of like when me and my friends in high school would talk about the pretty girls in the class. And I'd say, I'm going to ask one out. And they would say, like, you have a chance. <laughs> not worthy. Peter was not worthy of being in the presence of holy. 
But like on so many other occasions, we can count the times that Jesus says what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. A command with power and authority that only he has, being the creator, who rebukes demons, who rebukes sicknesses. Don't be afraid. And that's all he needs to say. Peter's sins are forgiven. He recognizes his sin. That's why he falls down. He's clean. He's forgiven. And with their forgiveness, Peter and the disciples are changed from unworthy to worthy. Not by anything they've done, but by the words that they've heard from Jesus to come and follow him. And this was Isaiah's reaction as well in the Old Testament. He's encountering God on the throne, a theophany, a vision of God, and he is unworthy. He says, I will be destroyed in this moment. Same reaction as Peter. But what happens? His mouth is touched with a burning coal that purifies him. Now he is able to praise God in his sinfulness, in his unworthy status before God. He cannot praise God or it's blasphemous. Now he can. And he can be in God's presence. God still chooses him. He still chooses Peter. After they've been forgiven. After they have been purified. He removes the stain of sin. And then able to praise God. This is the way God deals with his creation. It happens over and over again in the Bible. And it's happened to you and me. We cannot stand in the presence of God or have fellowship with him by our own desire and volition. We cannot simply walk up to God and say, hey, dude, how you doing? We always see God as a friend, but we forget the fact that he is against sin and anything that is not holy, mortal, cannot stand in his presence. We cannot be in front of him. We cannot simply walk up to him unless he seeks us out to have fellowship with him. Unless he purifies us and our lips and gives us his love and his mercy. He must first forgive our sins in order to be in his presence. And then he dwells in us having created us anew in Christ Jesus through the death and resurrection of his son. God did this to Isaiah, and Isaiah's hope in the Messiah. And God did this to Peter and the disciples even before he went to the cross. He called them, not because they were better, not because they were excellent fishermen, but simply because they were there and they were a part of creation. Something that he made and loved. But something that was so apart from him because of sin. They were part of his creation. And he chose to change, renew, and restore because of his love. The fish was not the miracle. The change in them was the miracle. You can tell that when Jesus commanded them not to fear... When they took away the sins and judgment, their lives were changed. What once was fear before God 
What once made them fearful of their own destruction, they now respond with willingness and action. After God cleanses Isaiah, then God talks to Isaiah. What does he ask? Who will go for us? Who will preach for us? Sending Isaiah to the Israelites. And Isaiah was changed from fear to confidence and says, I'll go. Here I am. Send me. Before, ready to die before the presence of God, now he is confident. Says, send me. After he tells the disciples, don't be afraid, they left everything and followed him. Who does that? Who leaves everything that they have? Especially since they have success now. They're going to walk away from fishing every day and getting boatloads of of fish to follow someone that they just met. I mean, on a hope, maybe a promise. Who volunteers to go and be a messenger for someone who moments ago was going to destroy them? They felt afraid. Who does that sort of thing? Only those whose hearts have changed. From now on, you will be catching people, not fish. You see, everything in the story goes from death to life in Isaiah and with the disciples. Where they were once judged and dead before Jesus, his forgiveness brings life. And where they were fishing, they caught live fish only to cook them and kill them and eat them. Now Jesus is flipping the metaphor. You're going to catch people who are dead in their sin and bring them to life. Of course, the disciples don't even question. We're going to catch people. Do you want us to eat them? Do we roast them? Do we boil them? This isn't, there's no question about that. And it's kind of funny. The same thing happens in the Lord's Supper. Take, eat, this is my body. There's no question. None of the disciples say, what do you mean? They knew. By faith. This guy we're going to follow, we don't know what it's all about, but we trust him. We are in the presence of God who has shown us love and has forgiven us. We're going to trust him. They leave everything to fish. For men, they leave everything. And I can imagine everybody saying, you're foolish. You are so foolish. Here you had a good catch. Just keep them with you. No, we're going to leave those boats. We're going to leave those nets. And he's got everything that we need to do what he wants us to do. Paul describes the faith of Christians as foolish. In his letter to the Corinthians, he writes, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Anyone would have called Peter, James, and John foolish for leaving everything and following Jesus. Consider this. In order for them to leave everything behind, they had to believe that the Lord would provide everything they would ever need. Also that they would trust in our God to the point of taking the risk of leaving their former life and starting new. And that risk was great during this time, especially because Christians were fed to lions. 
leaving and following Jesus would mean later on certain death. Even though they did not know the future, they knew that Jesus had the power and he had the authority and that his word had the power and the authority to grant forgiveness, healing, cast out demons and provide anything and everything that they would ever need. That's why Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power. The word's dynamite in Greek. The power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. And so they learned fishing for people was no different than what they were doing before. There was no way of predicting or knowing if they were going to be successful or not in catching people. They would cast God's word out through preaching, through healing, so that some might be saved. It was labor intensive. They were thrown in jail. They were whipped. They were at the point of starvation, at the point of death, cold without homes, and finally martyred. And they had to work now. Not later. Not wait while I finish this video game. Not wait until I get another boatload of fish to make sure I have enough cash on me to follow you. It was now. Now is the time of salvation, Jesus said a couple Sundays ago. Knowing that the dawn of the coming of Christ would soon be here, the world that has lived in darkness, now is the time to fish. Because when Christ comes back, it's the dawn of eternity, and there's going to be no more time to fish. Those who are saved are saved, and those who are not and don't believe are not. That's the metaphor in Luke. They had to work now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, like Isaiah and the disciples, God has called you into his presence. That's why you're here today. You know who you are. You know your sins are forgiven by him. He has called you by name in baptism. He has given you his Holy Spirit. You are redeemed to praise God and before, be before him in all eternity. But what does it take for you to leave everything and follow Jesus? And that you includes me. In other words, what does it take for you to trust him completely? That's first commandment stuff. So that when he says, who shall we send? Who's going to tell other people about Jesus? Here I am. Send me. My life has changed. I have your word. I know how to love people. Send me. First commandment stuff, and it's always difficult because we're always in need of forgiveness for not following him, and he gives it to us. And he forgives us. Most of the time we trust in ourselves and in our own abilities. And we say, oh, I don't speak very well. I can't do this. I can't do that. Rather than knowing that his word and the same word that has saved you is how others are saved. That's our net. That's what we cast out. That's what we pull in. Whose ears have heard and believed. 
I don't trust completely when I go and fish. But it's labor intensive. And the dawn will come and there's not much time left. Will people not like me? Will I be ridiculed? What is my faith worth? But His Word provides everything. We have everything we need to do the job. Trusting in God's Word does not mean instant success. It may not mean a miraculous catch numbers by the boatloads, but it's trusting that His Word does not return to Him empty. As Christians, here is our call to fish. It's from Matthew. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, until the sun comes up. They are Jesus' mandate to everyone who believes. It's the purpose of his church in the world is to go. There is no other reason that the church of our Lord Jesus Christ exists here on earth except as a colony of the kingdom of heaven, a reality that we wait for when it dawns so that others will come and be saved. It's good news. It's not a club. To know that you are accepted and are loved. To know that you can be free from sin is why we go fishing. I don't know of a single congregation that does not hold this mandate to be true. We all want people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth as Paul writes to Timothy. But sometimes we want to use bait and put in the pole and relax and have a beer. Sometimes we want to have just a project, a foolproof method or strategy or statistic that another church used or we heard about over here and that that project is going to make it work. Projects don't work. People who work in projects works. Because you're the fisherman. A school doesn't teach children. Teachers teach children in school. And so churches can have many projects. Churches can have many designs. If we have live music, I told you the one about the Sunday school in one of the churches that put a slide through one of the windows so that more kids would come and it would make it fun for them to slide from the outside parking lot through the Sunday school window and into, into school. Oh, well, maybe there's a liability in that. We wouldn't want to do it, you know. So. But is that preaching God's word? Are the children going to be saved by sliding through a slide? Did they just want numbers? Or are those people willing to meet with the child and with the parents and talk with them about Christ? In other words, we're the fishermen. Projects aren't bad. But I know that in many places where churches have schools, they feel that the school is the evangelistic tool that's going to bring people into the church. Is the goal bringing people into the church? 
Yes and no. Is the, is the goal preaching God's word so that they're saved? Yes. Capital Y, capital E, capital S. That's the goal. Salvation. Do we want our congregation to go? Of course we do. Everyone does. But it has to be through God's word. And it has to be through all of us fishing. A school's not going to bring people in unless you use that school to get into families, to talk to them, to share God's love. That will bring them salvation. We're called to go. We're called to go out, and the need is great. And we're called to go now because the dawn is near. And our call is to go and make disciples, and that means talking. And our going involves sharing and loving and teaching with whoever is around us. You are the project. You're the project of God. You were made. You were redeemed. You carry his word. Do we lack faith? Of course we do. Do we need to have it strengthened? Of course we do. And that's why we're here on Sundays. Paul reminds us that God is the one who sends us out with the authority of his word and his word alone. He says in Romans, how are they to call on the one who have not believed in? How are they to believe in the one that they have not heard of? How are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Consequently, faith comes from hearing and what is heard comes from the preached word of Christ. It's Paul's way of reminding us of this. If we don't go, then who? And if it isn't now, then when? And if it isn't here, then where? And if it's not with our mouths, then how? For God has given us all a new heart, a new voice, his message of salvation that fills our hearts that needs to be shared in a world in need of love. May God increase our faith and trust in him to show us the needs of those around us that through the eyes of faith we may see how and where to share his love as redeemed people of God. Amen. If you're interested in knowing more about Jesus Christ or about Grace Lutheran Church, please go to www.gracealoneonline.org. You can email us at gracealoneonline at gmail.com.